What do you do when your doubts seem overwhelming? What do you do when uh, the Bible does not seem quite as credible to you as it used to? What do you do when you've been a Christian your whole life, but right now you're feeling kind of ashamed of the way a lot of other Christians are acting? What do you do if you have been dragged to an Easter service by your family against your will, and you don't even believe any of this stuff is true? What do you do with doubt? That's what we're talking about today. I want to welcome you to Easter at Grace Church. Now, I know this is not how we normally start our Easter services. Usually there's a lot more like lasers and dancing bears. It's a little bit different. It's a little bit different. But I'm going to tell you why we're doing it a little differently today. Because we are going to talk about doubt. We're talking about doubt because we are living in a time where, for one thing, the credibility gap with the church is seemingly growing all the time. It's growing daily. Uh, We're living at a time where many people are walking away from their faith in Jesus, and we are living in a time of skepticism and and doubt and disbelief. And I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say that there may be some people, myself included, in this room watching online who resonate with some of that, who struggle with some of that from time to time. And so we're going to talk about it. What do you do with doubt? For the last few weeks or last couple months, actually, we've been working our way through the Gospel of John. And as we've seen, it's a very uh, kind of, it's kind of a gospel that takes no prisoners. There's no room for gray. I mean, it's with John, the the way that he depicts Jesus, I mean, it is life and death. It's light and dark. And he kind of expects you as the reader to pick a side. The question throughout the whole gospel is, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Well, today we are going to look at a story in the Gospel of John of somebody who doesn't, who doesn't believe it. A man that we often call today Doubting Thomas, Doubting Thomas. So grab a Bible, please, and uh, and turn with me to John 20, verse 19. It's going to be page 902 in the house Bibles in the seat in front of you. Uh, We read from the New Living Translation here, in case you're curious. Uh, You can, of course, use the Grace Church app if you'd like to follow along there as well. While you're turning there, I'm going to pray for us so we can uh, get into it. Father God, Thank you for this beautiful morning. Thank you for bringing us all to this place. I know uh, that it is no accident that we are together in this moment. Um, Father, I pray as we, as we read from the Gospel of John, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just prepare our hearts for what you are, you are going to say to us. I pray, as I always do, that I would simply disappear and that your Holy Spirit would remain. And I pray that we would have ears to hear what it is that you have for us this morning. So Father, would you speak? We are listening. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, so John 20, this is in in John where we read about the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus coming back to life after being crucified. What we'll read here, starting in verse 19, takes place in the evening or the late afternoon on the first Easter Easter day. Uh, Jesus rose from the grave that morning, and he revealed himself to a woman named Mary Magdalene. And Mary, uh, having seen Jesus, she rushes back to the disciples and tells them, I've seen the Lord. Um, And so that happens, and then a few hours later we read this. That Sunday evening... The disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, 
so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we've seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe. I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. All right, so Thomas doesn't believe. Now, before we go on, I want to I point out something I think is really important. The fact that these disciples, when Jesus shows up, are meeting in a locked room, a locked room. This tells us two things that I think are interesting. One, I mean, obviously, uh, it tells us that Jesus' resurrected body is somehow able to break the space-time continuum, <laughs> like he's able to, to, to defy the laws of physics. That's pretty cool. That's interesting. But that's not what I want to focus on. The other thing that it tells us that they're meeting in a locked room is it gives us a, a glimpse at the mental state of the disciples, right? We get a sense of, of how terrified they are. Uh, think about it. Think about it. The, this rabbi, this teacher that they had been following for years, uh, the one that they believed was going to be the new, the new king of Israel, the Messiah, the chosen one, right? They, they believed that he was going to rise up and just overpower Rome and all other human empires, and he was going to change everything. And yet he had just been brutally executed on a humiliating Roman cross, Just try to imagine what they would have been feeling and going through. Everything was falling apart for them. And now, as far as the authorities of Israel were concerned, these these guys, these rabble-rousers were were in league with an insurrectionist. They were traitors to the state, right? They, They were at risk of being executed themselves. So they're grieving the loss of their rabbi, but they are also very afraid, very afraid. And it's in that setting that Jesus reveals himself to them. Peace be with you. But of course, Thomas is not in the room when that happens. And he, he refuses to believe that it did. He says, I won't believe it unless I see him with my own two eyes. Well, let's keep reading and see what happens. Verse 26, eight days later, the disciples were together again. And this time, Thomas was with them. The doors were locked again, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. And look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound on my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, You believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. So I want to kind of get something off my chest here. Something, maybe it's a little chip on my shoulder. I think we've been a little bit hard and unfair to poor old Thomas Okay, the last 2,000 years, what have we called him? We've called him Doubting Thomas. Like that's his name. His his first name is not Doubting, okay? We've called him Doubting Thomas. It's like, imagine like you're in second grade and you trip over a rock, but then like in high school and college, everybody's still calling you Trippin' Tim, right? Like that, that's not fair. Like it was one time, it was a long time ago. And yet that's what we do to Thomas, right? We call him Doubting Thomas. Like that defined his character. I think it's a bit unfair. And so I wanna, I wanna, 
I want to talk about that because for a long time, I did seem to think, or I thought that Doubting Thomas had earned his nickname Fair and Square. Because uh, obviously, you read that story, and obviously he had screwed up royally, and Jesus shows up and just dunks on him here as this idiot who doesn't believe, right? Well, I'm not so sure about that anymore. I, I'm not entirely sure that's what John is trying to get across. So I want to show you why. A few reasons. First of all, let's remember what I just m mentioned before about the mental state of these disciples, what they were going through. Before Jesus showed up to them, it had been three days of hell. Three days of hell. Like I said, they are terrified that they are going to be executed. They don't know what's going to be happening. But at the same time, they're also, all of them, including Thomas, they're facing deep grief and abandonment and shame. I mean, they had all essentially deserted Jesus. Think about Peter. We're going to talk about Peter next weekend uh, on Sunday. But, but Peter, he had boisterously claimed, like, I'm ready to die for you, Jesus. And then hours later, he denied even knowing him right? Think about the shame that Peter was feeling and just multiply that among all these disciples. So they're all feeling all of this. It's not like these other disciples were, were paragons of faithfulness, okay? And sure, Thomas doesn't believe the news that Jesus had risen from the grave, but neither did the other disciples at first. In, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, it tells us that, that when Mary told them the news that Jesus had risen from the grave, none of them believed. None of them believed it when she said, we've seen the Lord. So so is Thomas really such a moron for not believing? I don't think so. I think he's just a young man facing indescribable grief. When they tell him Jesus is alive, his despair won't allow him to believe. Like, I just, I can't. I can't believe that because of what I've faced. And think about this. Think about what Jesus tells him in verse 27. Jesus says, put your finger here, look at my hands, put your hand into the wound in my side. You read that, maybe at first glance it feels like Jesus is trying to shame Thomas. Like, you fool, here's, look at this, look at it. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing here at all. Because remember, remember, back in verse 25, what does Thomas say? He says, unless I, I see the mark of the nails in his hands, unless I put my finger into the mark of the nails and, and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Well, what is Jesus doing here? He's offering him exactly what he asked for right? Jesus understood Thomas is not speaking out of hostile disbelief. No, he understood that he was expressing the skepticism of somebody whose entire world had fallen apart. And I think what we see into, into that skepticism, we see Jesus saying, look, if this is what you need to believe, then, then I'm going to give it to you. It's gentle. It's not, not condemning. But of course, Thomas doesn't need those things, does he? He doesn't need to put his hand in Jesus' side. No, the moment he sees Jesus, he simply responds, my Lord and my God. Oh, and one more thing. When he says this, when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, he is the first person in the whole Gospel of John to, other than the Gospel writer himself, to indicate that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is God. Think about that. Thomas is the first one to say that, that Jesus is God. So we all call him Doubting Thomas, but here he's the first one to acknowledge that truth. So yeah, I think we might be a bit unfair by assuming this whole story is just trashing Thomas for his doubt. I think we're unfair. Okay, so if that's the case and, and, and Jesus is not dunking on Thomas here, then, then what is he getting at in verse 29? 
Jesus tells him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Is he saying that, that Thomas isn't blessed? Is that what he's getting across? I don't think so. In fact, I don't even think Jesus is talking about Thomas here at all when he says, blessed are those who believe without seeing me. No, he's talking about someone else. You know who I think he's talking about? I think he's talking about you and me. He's talking about us. I mean, he, I think here Jesus is breaking the fourth wall. He is looking right at the camera and he is speaking to all the readers of John's gospel from the first century until now. He is saying we will be blessed if we believe. There's another reason I think this. Look at verse 30, what John says right after this. He says, The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book, but these are written, these are written so that you, dear reader, may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. By the way, that's what blessing means in in the Bible. When we see blessing, it means life. It means whole, abundant, peaceful, vibrant life. Like life lived in the presence of God. Blessing, I always say this, blessing in the Bible is like a return to Eden. It's a return to, to God's intentions for the world, the way things were meant to be free from the curse of death, free from from brokenness and and sin and selfishness, free from shame. That's what it means to be blessed. And as we see again and again in John, this this blessing, this life that, that is on offer for us, it goes way beyond just this existence. It stretches into the new creation, it, 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 where we too are resurrected into new life, just like Jesus. Jesus calls it in John, he calls it eternal life, or in other words, life of the age to come, now and forever. When we believe, according to Jesus, we are blessed, and by that we experience life, life of the age to come. So Jesus here, I believe, is talking to us. For all those reasons, this is why I believe John tells the story of Thomas's initial doubt and ultimate belief. This is not a cautionary tale about the dangers of doubt. It's not what this is. It's an invitation for us to believe as well in the midst of our doubt. For Jesus to meet us where we are in the midst of our skepticism, just as he did with Thomas. That's the whole point of the Gospel of John. It's all an invitation for you and for me to believe, to find life. Even if we struggle with doubt, John wants us to hear that Jesus Christ rose from the grave and we will find life if we believe it. Jesus rose from the grave. We will find life if we believe it. And so my question today is this. Do you? Do you believe that? Do I believe that? That's what I want us to wrestle with today. Do we believe? Now, I want to talk briefly a little bit just about my own faith journey, uh, my own sort of journey with belief, because I actually see this, this doubting Thomas, and I see myself in him a lot. I really, really, uh, I, I find a lot of resonance with this person, with this character. It may seem ridiculous for you to hear me say this, okay, but I'm a pretty skeptical person. I know I'm a pastor, right? I get it. But I'm a skeptic. I I don't take things at face value. I'm well acquainted with doubt and disbelief. 
I, I don't just take things that people tell me as true. I, I, I wrestle. I'm skeptical. Now, obviously, I do believe, right? I do because I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be a pastor if I didn't. But my journey through my doubts and my skepticism is a significant part of my belief. By the way, this is one of the things I love about Grace Church. Grace Church is and always has been a safe place to wrestle and to doubt and to work through the hard questions, right? My goodness, I've wrestled, I've doubted. And so I'm grateful for the way that this church has always been. All that to say, I just concluded teaching a four-week Bible class for Bible skeptics where I shared some of my my journey through finding a path through my skepticism. And I want to just take a moment and share a little bit of what I shared with that class, because I think it's relevant here. So the way I see it, I don't know if I'm going to get in trouble for even just saying these words, but I'm just going to go for it. The way I see it, there are two options. There are two options in this world. Number one, option one, God doesn't exist. Okay, there, I'm going to get fired. But that's the first, that's the first option. Either God doesn't exist or Or he does, but he doesn't reveal himself in super obvious ways. And by that, I mean, he didn't like carve, I am here onto the moon where we'd all be like, well, obviously he's there. So, you know, he didn't do that. So it's either one or the other. He doesn't exist or he does, but he doesn't reveal himself in obvious ways. And so for the last 20 years of my life, the years that I would consider as my my skeptical journey, the last 20 years of my life, I have been on a quest to find the answer to a, to a simple question. If it's the latter, if God does exist, then how does he reveal himself? If it's not obvious, if it's not carved into the moon, how does he reveal himself? And so I've spent these years, I've traveled the world, I've spoken with people from many different cultures, I've studied science, I've poured over history books, I've, I've sought the voice of God in everything from nature to music to this book, I've done the work to try to answer that question. And in all my searching, I have found one fundamental truth that for me makes sense of everything I've seen and experienced. It brings it all together and it makes, the, makes sense of it all. It makes sense of the, the incredible Christ followers I have met in Ukraine and Kenya and India, people who have given every single thing they have to care for their neighbors, to care for the suffering and the marginalized at great cost to themselves. It makes sense of that. Uh, I've seen uh, this truth make sense of of my own journey. I've seen seen it make sense of my own spiritual experiences that don't always make total sense, Uh, made sense of the, the fact that I feel like I am swept along into this calling and purpose that is way beyond myself, me, this nobody. Uh, And it's something that has made sense. This truth has made sense, not only of the, the pain I have seen in the world, but how I have seen that pain being healed. It's one fundamental truth, and it makes sense of it all for me. And here's that truth. That the creator of this universe is a self-sacrificial God. That the creator of all is a self-sacrificial God. A A God who enters into our reality who loves us so much that he willingly takes on our self-destruction, our violence, our pain, our injustice, our death on himself so that we can discover a new way to live. A self-sacrificial God who wants us, these these sinful, messed up, shame-filled nobodies, to join him in his mission of healing this world. This God of of self-giving love 
I, did, I believe he doesn't blast his identity onto the moon. He whispers his identity in our hearts. He shows up in a locked room to his disciples saying, peace be with you, as he shows them the holes in his hand. I've encountered that God of love in many different ways. He has gently met me again and again in the midst of my skepticism, in the midst of my doubt, and he has surprised me, surprised me with his presence in, in very unexpected places, in filthy orphanages, in horrific slums, in the bodies of the dying and the destitute. I have seen him there. I have seen him healing and bringing life in ways that don't make sense by the nature of this world. And yet he is there. And all I can say, having seen all of this, is my Lord and my God. Here, this life of mine, it's yours. It's yours. Take it. That has been my journey through skepticism into belief. Now, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I say that all the time. I, I told the class, I need to get a t-shirt that says, I could be wrong, because it's like my new slogan for life. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. But, but, I have chosen to make this fundamental truth of a self-sacrificial God, I have made this truth the foundation of my life. And it has led me to experience more joy, more purpose, more, more healing in my life and the lives of those around me than I could have possibly imagined before. No, I have not seen Jesus, but I have been blessed because I have heard his voice resonating through the fabric of my reality. I have found life because of it. I've been blessed just as Jesus promised because he is alive. Again, I resonate a lot with doubting Thomas who through his disbelief and, and through his skepticism encountered the living God. And he chose, because of this, he chose to give every last breath of his life to serve and follow this God. You know what happened? According to, to church tradition, a bunch of ancient sources Doubting Thomas went on to become the first missionary to take the good news of Jesus to India. He went all the way to southern India, possibly even to China. There are today four, like 4.5 million Christ followers in the state of Kerala alone in India who claim that their church congregations have their roots all the way back at the teachings of Thomas. Think about that. Millions of people today. And church tradition tells us that Thomas even gave his own life for the gospel message, that he was killed as a martyr for what he believed in Jesus. Thomas had found a truth worth sacrificing everything for. Jesus is alive. And I resonate with that because I have found a truth worth sacrificing everything for. Jesus is alive. My question for you again is, has, have you have you found that truth? Have you found, as John says, life by the power of his name? I'm not asking whether you have eliminated all your doubts. I'm not asking whether you've rejected your skepticism. I don't even think that's how belief works. Look, what is courage? What's courage? Is courage the absence of fear? Are brave people those that just have no fear at all? No, no. 
Courage means what you choose to do in the midst of your fear. Is belief the absence of doubt? No. Belief is what you choose to do in the presence of your doubt. How you choose to move forward, how you choose to go and follow even as you wonder. Have you made the choice to take the leap of faith? A choice to to believe in the risen Jesus and say, my Lord and my God. Or maybe, maybe for you, it's about taking that leap again. Maybe you're in a point of your life where your faith has crumbled, where what you used to believe doesn't, it seems hollow now. Have you taken the the leap of faith to re-engage your faith? Either way, whether it's the first leap or your hundredth, I'll tell you what, I've taken that leap myself and I have found life on the other side. Trust me. But don't just take my word for it. Don't just take my word for it. Listen to the voice of the millions and billions of Christ followers who have come before before me. Generations upon generations of Christ followers who have claimed to have found life and abundance and blessing by saying yes. This legacy of, of ancestors, spiritual ancestors, have passed down these truths, these words to us because they want us to find the life that they had sometimes even dying to protect these words so that we could find that life. And when I talk about spiritual ancestors, I'm not just talking about the modern American evangelical church. Look, we've missed the point in a lot of ways. I'm talking about the vast community of Christ followers around the world today and throughout history who have, who have been working hard to give their lives, to give themselves to a love that changes the world, the community of Jesus that has found a truth worth living and dying for. I'm talking about Thomas, who doubted the resurrection, but went on to touch the lives of millions. This community of faith, now and through history, has made the claim that Jesus holds the key to life. But they can't do the believing for you. And so I'm just going to tell you this. There is only one way, only one way that you can know whether these these claims are true. You have got to try to put them to the test. You've got to try and live out these claims and, and to see if there's actually any merit to what this book and this community claims you got to live it out. Test it. Does a posture of self-giving love like Jesus is, does it actually lead to greater joy? Does trusting in God's direction for your life instead of your own self-sufficiency, does that truly lead to a better life? Does radical nonviolence, does a commitment to justice for the marginalized, does a rejection of greed and power truly heal the brokenness of our world? Does this community of faith truly offer me a new life free of my shame and mistakes? And does this resurrected Messiah truly reach for me, reach for me and offer a second chance? I can tell you categorically that I have tested every one of those claims and I can say that the answer for me is yes. But the only way for you to know if these claims hold water is to take the plunge, to test these claims for yourself, 
Thomas believed because he saw Jesus, but blessed are those who believe without seeing. Take the plunge. Offer your life to Jesus. Trust him to be your guide. If it is all made up, well, that's going to become pretty clear to you in time. But if it's real, I believe you will encounter a kind of life and love and grace that changes everything. Next Sunday, right over here, we are going to be baptizing people. We are going to be celebrating this, this, uh, this act of baptism where uh, you're going to see people who are making a public declaration that they have chosen to surrender their lives to Jesus, that they believe. That's what we're going to see. Some of them that are going to be in that tank still have doubts. Some of them are still skeptical like me. But you are going to see with your own two eyes individuals who have tasted the life that God has for them and are ready to follow wherever he leads. Maybe the time has come for you to join them. Maybe the time has come for you to say, my Lord and my God, I am done trying to be the master of my own universe. I am done trying to be the one who solves all my problems. I am done trying to be the, the self-sufficient person that I, that I think I am. I'm done and I give up control. Maybe it's time for you to say yes to belief. I'm going to be in that tank and I would be honored to baptize you skeptic to skeptic. Jesus loves you. I love you. And we'll be waiting. Our self-sacrificial God rose again, defeating death that first Easter. Isn't it time for you to come alive as well? Let's pray. Well, Father, as I think about the world that we live in, the problems that we face, the questions that we have, it is, it is easy to be a doubt, doubter. It's easy to be skeptical. And yet, Father, at the same time, when I think about this, this idea of you as a self-sacrificial God, it brings me to my knees in, in, in humility, thinking how could you possibly love us this much? Father, I ask that for all who are hearing my voice, those who believe and those who do not, that your Holy Spirit would speak clearly to us, that we would hear the whisper of your voice in our hearts, and that you would reach for us in whatever way we need to believe. Father, would we have the courage to take the plunge, whether the first one or the hundredth, and follow you into the kind of life that you long for us to have. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our God. Amen. Thanks for watching, but don't stop there. We want you to find community at Grace Church, and the first step in doing that is going to gracechurch.us slash hub. There you'll find other sermons, details about upcoming events, and other important announcements. And make sure you subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out when we post something new. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next time.